Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Synergy. The interaction of two or more agents or forces so that their combined effect is greater than the sum of their individual effect. In physics, it is said that electrons live in relationship with one another. These particles do not exist on their own. As this holds true, on a subatomic level, so does it in the world around us that can be seen with the naked eye. A farm, a hive, is itself one big organism. In fact, so some say, is the planet Earth itself. So when one starts experimenting with natural processes, one should proceed with a great deal of caution. Science should work with the forces of nature, not against them. The Mother Earth has sent us little messengers, and these little messengers are offering us a warning. Like a canary in a coal mine. This noble messenger is the honeybee. Our honeybees are disappearing. And this could be disastrous for humans here on planet Earth. Why is our honeybee population disappearing? What does this mean for us humans? Our guest today is Gunther Hauk. And he will help us walk through this issue today on Main Street Universe. Blessed. 
everyone, and welcome to another episode of Main Street Universe, the show reminding you that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street than you may have ever imagined. And remember that every episode is recorded in the archive section. And what does this mean? It means that next week you can listen to last week, this week, in our archive section and on our Facebook page where this is Posted, and I'd like to welcome our co-hostess Janice for joining us this morning. Good morning, everybody. And today, welcome, Janice. We have a very special guest, an expert in beekeeping. He was featured in a movie, Queen of the Sun, and we will be discussing the disappearing bee population and what effect it has not only just on the bees themselves, but on us humans as well. So welcome, Gunther. You're Gunther, I'm sorry. <laughs> he just corrected me earlier. <laughs> Gunther Hauk, welcome to Main Street Universe, sir. Welcome. Yes, good morning to all Good morning. And I guess we will start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your practices. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm here in Virginia, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and my wife and I, Vivian and I, we started Spike and Art Farm six years ago, moved to Virginia two and a half years ago, where we have a honeybee sanctuary. And my practices go back to about almost 40 years of sustainable beekeeping and biodynamic gardening and farming. So I've been in it a long time, and when I started, everything seemed very easy and nice. And, of course, that has changed, and that changed already in the 90s uh, when a lot of beekeepers lost 80%, 90% of their bees to the varroa mite. And, of course, in 2006, 2007, it became evident that there is a big crisis, uh, colony collapse disorder upon us. And you mentioned biodynamic, and I remember that word being attached to a philosopher, Rudolf Steiner. Exactly, yes. (laughs) He gave lectures. Two farmers, about 100 farmers were there in what is now eastern Germany, or actually Poland now, and um, he gave lectures on beekeeping methods that actually work more with uh, stimulating agents and a vision of uh, an organism of a farm that goes way beyond anything that we have in organic now, in organic movement. It's actually the most sustainable way of farming, as has been proven on millions of acres. But in America, we are still in a third-world country state here compared to Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. And for those that don't know, and Gunther, you can expand on this if I get it wrong, biodynamic farming basically means you treat the entire farm like a living organism that creates its own fertilizer, creates its own food, and sustains itself. That's absolutely correct. 
you have an amount of animals for the manure that would give you the fertilization, and you have enough pastures uh, to create the forage for those animals. So you don't have to buy in either food feed nor fertilizer, and in addition, you create enough food for people. So, uh, and every part of the farm is an organ. So your fields are an organ, your pastures, your your hedges, your your water, your forests. All of these are organs that not only take something from the earth but also give something. So it's a, a really great image that we are striving toward. I don't know how many farms have accomplished it, but we can strive for it. And um, it's really a way to invigorate and, and enliven the soil and the plant and everybody who feeds on that. And that has been proven that the nutrition is absolutely the best possible if it's a well-managed biodynamic farm, which needs a good organic management, of course. You can't go around that. But it goes beyond the organic insofar as uh, we have uh, spray preparations and compost preparations that work on a very highly diluted uh, level, like homeopathy. Oh. That's the stimulating agent. It's like, um, you know, you may read a whole novel and one sentence may hit you and change your life and stimulate you, and we don't need every sentence to do that. And it's the same in nature. Um, stimulating the processes is more important than adding substances. And another aspect to that is, and to Steiner's approach that I thought was interesting, and of course we'll get to the bees in a minute, we're just getting some background here for everyone, is Rudolf Steiner also believed in working with moon phases and he considered to be almost spiritual form of farming. Well, I would say it is a spiritual form of farming, but spiritual in a very practical way. Mm -hmm. It's not a spiritual kind of farming that lifts you off, but that gets you into details of what the laws of nature are instead of the laws of mechanics. And uh, he gave much more than the agricultural lectures. Um, of course, Waldorf education, a new type of architecture, medicine. Um, there's a lot that has been stimulated by this man. Yes. And so from a little bit of background in biodynamics and biodynamic farming, We'll now go a bit more specific to the issue of beekeeping and what is happening to our bee populations. One thing I find interesting about this issue is a whole bunch of longtime beekeepers acting totally perplexed by this issue, acting like we don't know what's happening. Right. <laughs> and yes, actually, that's a great statement you're making because. When the news came out about colony collapse uh, disorder and why the bees are all dying off, everybody seemed like that's coming out of the blue sky, you know, what's behind it. 
Well, I wrote a book called Toward Saving the Honeybee already in 2000. It was uh, published in two, 202, mm-hmm. uh, where I show exactly that if you continue with our beekeeping practices as ha- as they have developed, uh, we are going to run into big problems. And Steiner predicted that too, you know, already in, two, in 1923, that if we mechanize natural processes where other laws are, are, are dominating, uh, then we might not even have to be at the end of the century. He's thought. And we are, we are there, you know, end of the century. We are a few years into the new century. But this is a very grave problem that has surfaced, and in a way it's good that it has surfaced. Because if a crisis is not uh, dealt with, then a bigger crisis will come along. So I'm I'm very happy about a crisis, and we don't like them in our personal lives, or you know we worry about the economic crisis, and all that shows that we are not on the right path, and that we have time perhaps to to actually steer in another direction that is sustainable. Right now we are not sustainable wherever you look, whether it's the economy, whether it's the way we exploit the globe with the water, with the fish, with the agriculture. And so the crisis right now with you know, a lot of the states being in a, an extreme drought and a lot of corn uh, just dying, that's a crisis, and it's a, it's a man-made crisis. You know, we are eating up the humus that nature creates and has created on those marvelous prairie grounds with the buffalo uh, creating a lot of the f- fertility. We are eating it up 80 times as fast as it can be created, and a pound of humus holds its own weight in water. So when we deplete the humus, we actually create droughts and floods at the same time or subsequently. Mm. So the crisis is always a great eye-opener and a great opportunity to change what is not good for us. One of the things about when I mentioned these beekeepers acting so surprised, which is funny to me because some of these people, aren't they in long-time beekeeping families, did they not at one time know the natural way and then watch it change? That's absolutely right. But, but um, you know, the professional beekeeping has taken on the paradigm of our industrialized agriculture, and that is get as much and as quickly out of whatever as you can and as cheaply whether it's the soil, whether it's a plant, whether it's another human being, too. And the <laughs> same has happened to the yeah. bee. And so and a lot of things have been invented, like uh, taking basically all the honey and feeding sugar at first. Now corn syrup is cheaper, so feeding the bees, actually Monsanto-inspired corn syrup, uh, that's one thing, but then the plastic foundation, the wired brood foundation, um, taking the bees up to 100,000 miles a year 
from one monoculture to another one, the depletion of the natural forage. You know, when formerly in a wheat field you had poppies and cornflowers and eyebright and, and other weeds, so-called weeds, and mm-hmm. they actually uh, were the forage during the summer for the bees, and we've sprayed all of that out. Now we only have wheat growing and nothing else, or corn and nothing else. These are deserts for the bees. Mm. And that brings me to another point, and for those out there listening, if this is like a new issue to them. When this issue was new to me, when I first stumbled across this issue, I remember being very surprised that a lot of the problem came from the beekeeping industry itself. I think I guessed natural things that people might guess, okay, chemicals, pollution, pesticides, maybe chemlon. I was very surprised to see that it's a lot of the problems was from the beekeepers themselves, using sugar water instead of feeding them back the natural honey, et cetera, et cetera. And now I want to comment on your methods and people who are doing biodynamic and natural beekeeping, you are saying you do not suffer from the colony collapse disorder the way the commercial beekeepers do. That's right, yes. I never had colony collapse disorder. I, you know, I I think I'm lucky because it could happen because we don't turn things around in a few years that have developed over over, over 100 years. So I never had fowl brood without any chemicals, and beekeepers say that's impossible. Well, it is possible because (laughs) I learned sustainable beekeeping in a biodynamic garden. I was a gardening teacher at that time at a Waldorf school, and um, when the varroa mite came, we realized right away that uh, we have to not treat with uh, conventional chemicals but find other ways. So what our aim is at the sanctuary is to strengthen the bee and and respect the instinct, and that means not raising artificial queens out of worker larvae, which is done, I would say, 99.5% at least, uh, from hobby beekeeper to the professional. Uh, we don't feed the sugar, with very rare exceptions. Uh, We don't manipulate the honeycomb with uh, artificial foundations. That's a sheet of honeycomb that has been processed, recycled, so to say. Um, So we let them build natural comb because this is also one of the organs. If you look at the organism of a hive, uh, you have one queen, you have, you know, strong hive, you have 50,000 workers and about 2,000 drones in the summer. But Mm -hmm. you have the natural honeycomb and that is not respected enough. In other words, that is actually created from the bees themselves, the waxes. It's exuded from their own metabolism. It's the only insect that actually creates the womb for its offspring out of its own body. None of the other bees, the solitary bees, the wasps, the hornets, they all take part of nature. We've seen the beautiful hornet's nests made out of uh, wood, uh, paper that they make. 
And so the honey, the honeycomb is one of the four organs in that hive. So the drones, the workers, the queen, and the honeycomb. So we respect that too and let them build their own comb because that compares to us building our own bones. And in my workshops, I sometimes you know, pose the question, would you like to have your bones recycled and put back? And nobody... Nobody offers for that. Yes, made from an outside source. (laughs) Well, you know, it's cleansed and heated, and then we give it back to the bees uh, in order to make perfectly straight wax comb. And that is so we can put the, uh, the frame of honeycomb with honey into uh, a decapping machine, which takes the caps off the honey. And uh, you can't do that if it's a little bit wavy. You see, everything has been perfected for the industrial beekeeper. And the biggest beekeeper here in the United States at one time had 70,000 colonies. Now, you can't even imagine having a 1,000 colonies and, and having a personal relationship to them. Right. And that's that's a problem uh, because the bees like to be in a personal relationship to us. And you can't do that with a thousand hives anymore. And you've got to get bigger, just like the farmer. You have to have more acreage and specialize and all that. The same thing has happened to beekeeping. And because we believe that the scientists and the university professors know best, all of that research, how to perfect that, has filtered down into the hobby beekeeping. And that is that actually is the, the grave problem. But it's not hopeless because more and more people are waking up to that and we experience more and more people saying, well, I had bees before and I didn't want to use all the chemicals and... Now I want to do it again in a sustainable way. And and that's very encouraging. And I have noticed more people just, and I have a very public sort of job working in food and and retail environments, as well as I'm a a musician, and I'm around a lot of people a lot of time. (laughs) And I have Mm -hmm. noticed a lot more people becoming aware of this issue and becoming concerned about it. So there is some positives, and including in the food industry I work in, more people are starting to demand more natural products in general. So there are some positives here. And I'd like Mm -hmm. to get to when you were talking about, we were talking about some population loss of the bees. There are some things that naturally happen. And one, I believe, is sometimes there's more nutrients needed in the spring. And when the queen... Uh, comes about and sometimes bees will kind of naturally die and need a little more nutrients in the spring I think I've I've heard before but those are more of a natural thing that can occur perhaps but one thing I'd like to get to when you're talking about personal and hobby beekeeping is perhaps the idea of urban beekeeping can you keep mm-hmm. a hive, say, in an urban or in a city setting? Or do you have an opinion of that? 
Yes, uh, it is not only possible, there may be more forage in the city than out in the landscape nowadays. I mm. talked to a beekeeper in New York City, and he said he gets more honey from his hives in New York City. Now, this may change because uh, beekeeping has been permitted in New York City, and there are a huge number of urban beekeepers there, and that may go beyond the level that the city can sustain. So it's a delicate question. But you definitely can keep bees in a city, and I think Chicago, many, many cities have permitted that. So if your city hasn't yet, then uh, get after them. <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, yeah, definitely possible. The bees actually like to be up in the air, so a, a swarm will love to be 10, 15 feet, 20 feet up in the air in a tree rather than being on the ground. Mm. That's definitely a help. They are not ground beings. They rarely touch the ground. They touch the flower. They need to touch the ground when they get water to feed the larvae. They need water to dilute the honey and the pollen to make a special food out of out of that. But um, otherwise, they touch the ground when they die. And, you know, you have about 1,500 bees, workers being created every day in the height of the season, and about 1,500 die, so that is natural. And colonies die too, just as dogs do and cats and cows. So... We even before things became bad, we had five percent, eight percent, two percent losses in the winter, but not the thirty-three percent that is the average now for the professional beekeeper, and that is not sustainable. They say it themselves: fifteen percent would be sustainable, thirty-three percent is not sustainable. So we see it going downhill year after year. And the, that involves a food crisis, it involves a crisis in nature in general because the bees and the hornets and the wasps and the ants are much more important than just for pollination. I have a question to ask you, Gunther. Um, mm -hmm. You had said the bees want to have a relationship with us, and I find that very fascinating because I was working as a social worker at one time, and we always try to foster a relationship with our clients. So can you go into a little bit about how the bees want to have a, a relationship with us? Mm -hmm. Well, the bee is not a wild animal. It is a domesticated animal. Okay. And all of the domesticated animals have a very special relationship to the human being and and to our evolution. They are right. our great friends and helpers and brothers and sisters in a way. And uh, that was known in previous times. You know, the, the cow, for example, in those old farmhouses, they were right next to the bedroom, for example, with a with a little window going out to the other room where the cow was. And the, the bees and the cows and these animals were, and the horse especially, 
Work oh, the clothes. horse, yes. The horses always have yeah. a relationship with man. Yeah, they and they need that relationship. You can't just say, okay, go on now. I, I don't need you anymore. I don't want you anymore. We have changed these animals tremendously. Mm-hmm. If you look at a wild dog and then you look at a at a chihuahua and a Great Dane or a, a Rottweiler <laughs> or a Dachshund, you know that we human beings have actually created new breeds out of these animals with with a lot of love, with a lot yeah. of patience, with a lot of knowledge of what this animal needs. And that love and reverence and awe and wonder and respect these qualities have been lost to a great degree, and we have to regain them yes. if we are going forward in our evolution. And uh, I know there is a movement out west where they say, let's populate the forests again with bees. We don't need to keep them here. I think that is not right. The, the honeybee is very close to our heart. And right. that's why the crisis touches so many people. Uh, just imagine the the bats are in great danger. But, you know, people say, oh, yeah, bat, I don't like them anyway or whatever, you know. Well, but, people are afraid but, of bats. That's, yeah, that's right. part of the reason. Batman. But I've also noticed myself the lightning bugs. I remember when I was a kid uh, in the 70s that um, the area would be very populated with lightning bugs. And now if you see more than five, it's like a celebration. Right. I think that goes for all of nature. We have we have killed off about 60% of our animal species, mm. uh, not to speak of the plant species, in 150 years. Mm. That is not just a natural cycle in evolution. That is man-made. And a lot of these species are insects because they are most, uh, susceptible to any change and to any poison that is put into nature. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, I used to see the stag beetle and the, the rhinoceros beetle and, and many different butterflies, and you don't see them anymore. Some have become extinct. Right. And we and have lost 96%. Sorry. We have lost 96% of four major bumblebee species. Mm. So that just yeah, shows I read that the yesterday, crisis 95%. Beyond, yeah, the crisis goes beyond the honeybees. They are just the tip of the iceberg. Or the canary in the coal mine. Or, you know, they are the messenger trying to wake us up and out of our sleep of uh, thinking we can get everything out of nature and manipulate all of nature to our own needs in a brutal way and still have enough for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren left. So that that is the great illusion that we have to break with. And I wanted to get back to a point that probably is everybody's first culprit, first guilty party that most people think of, and that is now we've talked about the beekeeping side and the interrelationship with human side. Many people would say, well, is it chemicals, pesticides? One of the peop- our listeners, Marcy, in the chat room 
said uh, mentioned Chemlon and things like that. And I was wondering if you could comment on pesticides, chemicals, Chemlon, etc. Well, I would say there are a great number of influences, all of them uh, due to us, how we farm, how we uh, manipulate the weather now, and uh, including cell phone towers and, and so on. Everything we do has an effect. I would exclude nothing. <laughs> but uh, mm. you can't pin it down to one or two or three things. The pesticides, the herbicides, the insecticides, all of that has, the fungicides, all of those are death agents. I mean, just imagine we work with death in a realm of life which we then eat. It's absurd, actually, when you think of it. So the monocultures, the, the chemicals, uh, all of them have an effect. And that is, I would say, mainly agriculture that is responsible for that, uh, spraying out all the beneficial medicinal weeds that uh, all these insects thrive on and need in small quantities. And uh, the other side is the beekeeping methods themselves. So there are two streams that are coming together now. Both of them are driven by the bottom line. And, you see, that is actually the great opportunity that these, that crisis is upon us where we can say, well, how should we deal with nature, with the animals? Can we keep cows in those feedlots? And can we keep chickens the way we had for a number of decades in those cages and just produce eggs and, and the pigs and everything else? And can we just poison the earth as a living being? The earth is a living being which breathes, has a daily breath and a yearly breath, and um, we, are, we are just killing all the soil life with these, even with the artificial fertilizer. These are salts. We are, we are destroying the worms and the springtails and the microorganisms in, in all these soils. So all of that, I would say all of it has an effect, and you can't say it's just this or that. It all comes down, and it's all driven by our materialistic mindset and the idea that we can manipulate nature to and bend it to our way rather than learning the laws of nature. And I think you said it at the beginning, and, and going with the laws of nature and not against them. Yes. And I did take that messenger bit from, a, from one of your quotes, by the way. So that was a Gunter <laughs> uh -huh. quote that I borrowed about the bees being our little messengers, letting us know. And let's speak a little bit about that, the movie you were involved in, in Queen of the Sun, if you will. Yes, I'd be glad to, because it's it's a really a wonderful movie, very artistically done, very thoroughly researched by Taggart Siegel and Ron Betts. And I was sort of, I was a little bit part of the very beginning, because on my last day at the Pfeiffer Center in Spring Valley, New York, where I left in order to 
go out to Illinois and start a, a big farm there and convert it to biodynamics. Um, on the last day, Taggart Siegel was there showing Queen of the uh, showing the real dirt on Farmer John, which is a wonderful movie mm-hmm. about a farmer in Illinois. Uh, he is the owner and inspirer of Angelic Organics Farm with over a thousand shares. Um, so it's one of the biggest organic biodynamic farms in the United States. And he showed that movie and then came down to the Pfeiffer Center, which I co-founded in 1996. And we talked about the bees and I opened a few hives and we talked. And the more we talked, the more interested he became in my approach. And when he left, he said, well, I've I've been wanting to make a movie about bees, but now I know which way to take it. Mm-hmm. So he went all over the world to Australia, New Zealand, Italy, France, Germany, Switzerland, England, and the United States to interview people who are either biodynamic or more uh, sustainable in their beekeeping methods. So that movie doesn't really focus on the pain of the industrialized beekeepers as much. It has a little bit in it. Whereas the other movie, uh, Vanishing of the Bees, just focuses on that and is actually a great movie. We are in that too. Is a great movie about the, well, I would say the great sin, our... (laughs) of our modern agriculture, the destruction that it creates. Well, Queen of the Sun, then, I think it's very artistically, very touching, and gives hope, because there are more and more people working with bees in a better way. So you would say Queen of the Sun took more of the approach of to inspire more so than to maybe frighten. It was more to say, let's inspire. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and um, it's got rave reviews, and I think it's in with subtitles already in several other languages. And it just gives the message that, uh, well, the subtitle is, what are the bees telling us? <laughs> so the bees are telling us, um, yeah, change your ways. The times, they are changing, like the song goes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The times are changing, and the life is changing, and the earth is changing. And we have to really strive to, to create and make it our own, a different paradigm, a a paradigm that includes much more subtle subtleties and includes spiritual aspects of our everyday practice, whether, you know, we are a teacher or a beekeeper or uh, somebody selling a product. There can be a spiritually in everything we do. I agree. I think that's very, very well said. Janice? Uh, The woman that was in the Queen of the Sun the bee queen, um, what was she like? Because I know when I had looked at a little bit of the video, um, I was kind of amazed that she had all those bees on her. And it didn't seem to really um, bother the bees, and it didn't seem to bother her either. So I found that very fascinating. 
Well, she's a very special lady. I met her in Portland. You know, I give workshops all over the states. Uh, not that many, but um, and she, she, she's very brave. I don't know if she's I very brave. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and she had a whole swarm of bees on her. There's actually a competition. Uh, I competition. Where. Mm. A, a competition uh, that somebody stands on the scale and sees how many bee, how many pounds of bees he can attract, and that's easily done with a bit of honey and a queen pharaoh. <laughs> and <laughs> the, and the trick is how to get rid of them. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to say. How do you come down? I'm sick of that. How do you come off of that? How do you come yeah. down of that? Yeah. Well, and uh, apparently she wasn't stung because I, I thought she if she stung. got stung, she uh, especially a lot, then maybe she wouldn't be so agreeable on, on doing that. Right. Yeah, you can see her lip a little bit swollen in that movie. Oh yeah, she was moving and, very slowly in the in the movie. But he went right on and didn't let it disturb her. Kept her cool. Uh, probably when if you have a little honey on your body, you let them eat it, and then they will fly off, and if she had a pharaoh, and I don't know that, a queen pharaoh, then you take that away and the bees will eventually leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a picture, there was a bee club on Hawaii, and all the women uh, actually were topless, but had bee-kinis on, and of course that was big. <laughs> There was a, a bikini. Bikini yeah. <laughs> bees, I, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't recommend it all. It's no, also, I wouldn't either. You know, the, the bees need the respect and the kindness and not manipulate them for this or that. Uh, fantastic, and, you know, exciting stuff. That, that's, the time is over. Just like, you know, I get. I get asked, people get, uh, people find out I'm a beekeeper, oh, and I still get that question, how much honey did you harvest last year? You know what I answer? What? What What did you get out of your wife last year? Ooh. <laughs> or out of your honey, uh, out, of your, out of your husband. And that shows us that relationship, what do I get out of that other being, is not appropriate anymore. That's the old paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that we can't yeah. ask that anymore. How many eggs, do I really get 360 eggs out of a chicken? And do I get a broiler in eight weeks already? And all of that has to leave us if we are going to Keep nature and the beings that support all of us, the plants and the animals. Mm-hmm. And that reminds me of a conversation I was having the other day. And we were, it was with my brother. My brother's a Unitarian uh, minister. And we are talking about people that think only in the numbers, which is exactly what you're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Creative number crunching people are necessary, but you can't let them run everything. <laughs> you can't run everything. <laughs> Somebody has to step in and go, wait, you can't just make that decision because the numbers work for you. <laughs> yeah. But you know, man is very much a number creature. Right, and numbers, I mean, we are 
people who also have to be logical and so on. So we just have to find ways that go above and beyond the numbers. Like the farm that you can create, and I've lived right next to a biodynamic farm that actually created a very viable uh, farm, a profitable farm, uh, on a uh, on 100 hectares, that's 250 acres, uh, in a valley where the agriculture department said farming is not possible because they could have a frost any month of the year. Imagine that. And, uh, and they created a very, very thriving biodynamic farm in Heidenheim. And... Um, but they did it with the biodynamic preparations and the ideas of having the appropriate amount of livestock that gave the fertility, and yeah, they were able to sell wheat and rye and vegetables and all that, uh, not just self-sustaining for themselves, but re- really a wonderful creative uh, farm. And, and you see, there is a way. Uh, there are a lot of people who say, uh, it's either or. Either I do the numbers or I go bankrupt. Mm. And in life, there is always a third possibility. I agree. You know, the either or that we learned in school through true-false tests, I always had a problem with them because I could find a middle way or partially true and partially false. But... Um, that is not the way we can go on either. We have to find a third way, and that takes work and it takes openness of the mind uh, to to see that and to work on that. So the numbers, yes. Um, so to have a good business plan and all that is important, I think. And to know uh, what your climate is and your soil structure and your fertility base and all that. I'm not, I'm not against numbers, and the same goes for beekeeping. So we harvest some honey, but definitely not as much as most other people, uh, definitely not as much as the professionals. So we have some hives where we don't take any honey in the fall or now at the end of the summer, but we let them feed on their own honey, and then in April when the new forage starts, with a dandelion and a orchard, uh, that's when a surplus can be taken. And so it's it's just uh, part of letting them feed on what is best for them because the honey is really best for them. And very briefly, and then we'll move on, uh, Queen of the Sun, one of my listeners here put, posted in the chat room, is available on Netflix. So if anybody wants to right. check that. At Amazon, too, for $29. Yeah, Amazon as well. Yeah, yeah it's well worth it, too, I can say. It's a <laughs> wonderful movie that can even be watched with children. They, they, they sit there for the hour and a half, not quite, 82 minutes, very quietly, because it's so beautiful. And it did look very artistically done. I didn't yes. see it, I saw clips. I'd like to get now... We were talking about we kind of faded to numbers and get back a little bit to, as you said, the third way or a different way. There's always that different way if you do something, do some research. Let's talk about now some possible 
solutions. And there was one I heard of, of sponsoring beehives. Like if you don't want to have your own, but you can sponsor one. And I wonder mm-hmm. if you could talk about beehive sponsoring programs. Right. That is a growing movement, too, that... Um People will take care of your hive if you don't feel like you can do it yourself. Uh, That's one way. Um, And the other way is, um, for example, we are going to start a program in a few months when everything is ready for Adopt a Beehive. So we are a non-profit organization relying on individual donors and some grants. We don't have any USDA grants so far. We are too far out. And uh, mm. so to adopt a hive, that that actually helps the research and the education that we do. We have uh, four workshops every year. We have school classes coming. We have actually a two-year training, which is maxed out this time, and we have a waiting list. Uh, that meets four times, two times each year, three days each. So we are doing a lot of research on hive shape and hive warmth and hive scent and um, mite treatments and all that. All of that can be supported by people who don't have the ability to keep bees for themselves, either because they travel too much or they don't have the the right location. So that that is a growing thing, adopt a beehive, or um, what did you mention, uh, just help with, with the same... Sponsor a beehive. Yeah, basic sponsoring, sponsor adopting, same, yeah. same basic yeah. uh, principle, and mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea because I think a lot of urban people that want to help, that are maybe also very busy in their lives and feel like they wouldn't mm-hmm. have time or willingness... Right, but they want the personal uh, relationship, right? It's it's basically yeah. their right. life. They can visit it. They can look at it. They they yes. can sit in you know not in front but at the side of the entrance. Bees are actually very docile. Uh, we rarely get a sting, even when we work the bees, and uh, we work without a veil, of course, and without gloves and without a suit. Uh, about 99% of the times, and um, that lets you approach the bees in a different attitude. You know, if you're all suited up, you can do just about anything. And if you are as vulnerable as they are, you go to them much more respectfully. That's an interesting approach. I like that. And that will also take me to your information for your farm. It's Spike Nard Farms, and is yeah, that farm? Farm? It's only one farm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's okay. Spikenard or spikenard is a, a plant that was revered in antiquity. It was considered really a sacred plant from the Himalayas. Mary Magdalene used it to anoint Jesus Christ, and Horace and Ovid had a deal where one would give a barrel of wine for one vial of spikenard oil. So it's it's a, a wonderful healing substance, and that's where the name comes from, because we think our, our sanctuary is a healing place for the bee, and not only for the bee, but many other beings. 
you can Google us. Very interesting. Uh, you can Google us on the web on the web page spikenotfarm.org and find courses and we have a few things to sell and a lot of information also about our BT, which is a runner, which um, is a great invigorator and healing substance. Uh, we are we are making that. That's one of the runners. And we sell some seeds. Actually, we are out of some of them right now. So you can go on the website and get a lot of information there about us. You can also donate on the website. Um, you can visit the the sanctuary every Monday we have an open day in August and September and then by individual appointment um, and more and more people visit the sanctuary I think it's uh, something that is intriguing for be for people to have bees that are not under the commercial stress of having to produce well, they are patient in the emergency room I, I consider them that way and that brings me to another point, another place where, to me, commercial beekeepers are fumbling the ball and one we haven't discussed yet, and that is they try to produce bigger bees, but the trying to produce bigger bees can actually help make the mite problem worse, according to my research, and I was wondering if you could comment on that, the growing mite problem. Right. That That is definitely one aspect. Uh, how we have manipulated the bees to make her more productive, in other words. And all these inventions, you know, they, they work for a while. They, you know, are commercial agriculture, great stuff, you know, bigger crops and bigger plants and everything. And then it then the crisis really comes in and hits you because that is not the way to go. So when we let the bees build their own honeycomb, they actually create different sizes of workers, for example, worker cells, uh, according to the time of the year and what they need. So we let them, we, we just think the bees know best. <laughs> we don't manipulate them, either small or large cells. But that was one of the things, you know, like the wild strawberry making big strawberries had an effect in nature. The wild strawberry has been disappearing with its wonderful fragrance. Anyone who's ever tasted it knows that. I don't know if I have, actually. I've tried the golden raspberries recently, which were pretty good. No, nothing comes close. Nothing comes even close mm. to the heavenly fragrance of the wild strawberry. Mm. But that's just an aside, you know. We, our manipulation of nature has been bigger, more milk production, more, even on the pig even, they tried it for a while, more ribs, and uh, it's just amazing, more eggs. Yeah. Uh, now we have chickens that, uh, that can't even hatch their own eggs anymore because everything is done in incubators. Uh, we were lucky we had one broody hen this year, and we have seven little chicks. So we still try to reverse that trend, too. Mm-hmm. That's um, Yeah, that could open up a whole other show, really. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, a couple, a couple different shows, actually. We talked a little about the GMOs before, which is part of this problem, too. They're being fed GMO corn syrup mm-hmm. and Monsanto corn syrup. 
And I'd I'd like to touch upon another way that bees help humans, or at least that's been helpful to me personally. It might not be for everybody. But I do use raw or local honey for the treatment of allergies. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's like something else that works beautifully, you know. Go ahead. That has the pollen in from your location, and you're desensitizing yourself. It doesn't work in one day or one month, but over the years it definitely helps to desensitize you to the certain pollen. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been living in... I, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, I've been, I've been living here just like you said, about a year, and so I did it you know, over time slowly, and it, and it worked very well for me. And But again, back to the solutions... On your website, are you going to be mentioning the Adopt a Hive program? Is that mentioned on your site as well? Yes, as soon, not not yet. We have to do the nitty-gritty stuff. We have to create uh, something which the people get, in other words, a plaque on the hive, and also, um, well, if it's a business or an organization, the PR uh, material that they get, and things like that. And when we have that created, we'll start it. And that will be on our website, too, of course. Okay. And you yourself, you mentioned very early on your book. I wonder if you'd talk about a little bit about your books and, the, and that you predicted this. Well, um, right. yeah, I predicted it. Steiner predicted it before me, but I saw it coming mm-hmm. with everything uh, really uh, very close and it's called Toward Saving the Honeybee. You can get it uh, online. You can order it at the biodynamic organization. Um, I, in that book, I go through basically everything that has caused the problems we have now and the solution, how to work differently. And um, actually on a public radio somebody re- uh, doing a review on that book said it could also be called Toward Saving Humanity. <laughs> so it goes <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, yeah. I like that very much, yeah. But it's, yeah. it's just a general change in attitude how we work with the animals, with nature in general, with the other human being. And that for me is the, the great paradigm shift that is on the way. It's not. It's not waiting. It's on the way, and more and more people are are not buying into it. That's already a bit, you know. They're taking yeah. it up, and that's that's wonderful. That's what what gives what gives me hope. Yes, and like I said, I've run into many people that are becoming much more aware of this. It's kind of a good sign. Like you said, it's a slow work in progress, but there are some positive things going. Now, let's crunch some raw numbers. I've heard it from some sources saying it's as bad as we've actually already lost 70%. I've heard 30% of bees have been lost on the lower end. Do you have a guesstimation as to about how many we have lost? Well, I, I got a statistic, and of course, absolute accuracy is not possible because only the registered hives uh, are caught in that but we had about 7 million registered hives 20 years ago, and now we have about two and a half, no, 
seven million, and now we have two and a half million. That does not include the hobby beekeepers uh, that are growing in number and that do not always register their hives. So we've lost quite a bit, and the losses are 30, between 30 and 33% each year, mm. and some of those losses are made up uh, by making new splits and breeding new queens and all that, some of which is not sustainable. All of that is not sustainable. So the food crisis and the general vitality of all the plants, you know, our medicinal plants are also involved in, in the pollinator crisis. We're not only the food. Mm. Uh, I, I think it's a great opportunity to change ways and absolutely necessary. And if we don't, well, we'll, we'll experience the pain and the suffering that it all causes. Yes, and I remember in your movie saying this could be not just honeybee colony collapse disorder, this could be humankind colony uh, collapse disorder. And it's a real threat to humans. So for those of you that say, oh, this is just environmental people saying their thing, again, this involves food, and this involves human beings, even if you're not feeling concerned for the honeybee like those of us here are. But this involves humankind and our own survival. Even if you're not mm-hmm. into fruits or, or um, vegetables, you can have a lot of almonds and a lot of uh, pecans, macadamia nuts, those type of things. And there's a lot of people that love to eat nuts. So just imagine uh, a loss of that. Or birds. Mm-hmm. Birds, yeah. yeah, yeah. Insects go, birds go. Um, it, it's uh, you cannot exclude that um, that interrelationship with all of nature. You can't just take the bees out, whether it's the native bees or the ants or the wasps. All of it has an extremely important role, and the bees and the wasps and the hornets and the ants are at the very base of invigorating all of plant life with their formic acid. That's why this goes way beyond pollination. This goes really, it goes to the heart of our being able to evolve on this wonderful planet for, you know, till we reach the goal. That's how serious that is. I think it's a crisis that's much more serious than global warming. Mm. But global warming, you know, you can make money on that. You can sell carbon credits. <laughs> People don't even mm. know. Nitrogen is 20 times as effective for global warming as carbon is, but then we would have to change our agriculture with our high input of nitrogen. Nobody talks about that. So there are many topics. From the cars? To raised. Pardon me? Coming from cars, nitrogen? Nitrogen, well, the artificial nitrogen for fertilizer. Ah, okay. So the the high amount of nitrogen we put into our farms artificially, um, (laughs) that's that's more productive for global warming than the carbon that we are blowing into into the air now. Okay. 
you know, agriculture and the bees, all of that involves every part of our lives. And, yeah, as you said, many more topics are are raised by it than covered. Yes. Well, let me tell you, there's a grasshopper in here that has my attention uh, pretty big. <laughs> it actually they came to join us in here about the bees. There's a giant cricket that's in our studio right now. It's humongous. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's beautiful, but it is it's humongous. So, um, yeah. Put a glass jar over it and a piece of paper under that and take it outside. It will thank you. Yes. yes. I do that with the spiders right. <laughs> as well. And it brings me to another point I wanted to ask about. I've heard a lot of these commercial beekeepers, and some of them will mention as one of their what seems to me like desperation tactics, importing a lot of bees from Australia and other places. How do these bees fare? How do they survive in a climate that's not their home climate? Or can they become indigenous or indigenized, I guess? Well, first of all, they are completely stressed. They're going from their summer to our winter because that's usually done in January, February. So they are there for the pollination. And they don't fare well. Uh, That's one thing. And it's not sustainable. Are we going to import 2 million or 3 million hives every year? It's it's impossible. It's impossible. It's a short-lived solution but necessary at this time to um, be able to pollinate the fruit and the almonds in California. So all of these things point to what we are trying to do, um, not really looking at solutions. It's just like scientists looking at which viruses and bacteria and fungi are uh, killing our bees. They're looking at symptoms and not the causes because only an organism that is stressed and not healthy and not getting the food it needs is susceptible to these. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get infected by touching somebody's hand with two million or five billion bacteria on it. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. So we have to look at the causes, the true causes, and that takes courage and honesty, and that's missing in the scientific world yet. They, they still think it's the other one that's doing it, not, the, not me, you know, not I myself, but the axis of evil is somewhere over there and not in my heart. And that's, that's not going to go for a long time. I think the solution will be for the commercial beekeepers uh, to scale down drastically and maybe uh, each farm having bees again, that we don't need all the migration and we don't need all of that stuff. And then we have to see how to, if you're a commercial one, yeah, it's hard. I, I sometimes really pity the commercial beekeepers because they've got all the trucks and extraction equipment and everything that's geared to that high production and that won't go anymore. So it's the hobby beekeepers and the small professionals that are going to give us the hope that we can keep the honeybee and the other bees. And for that, agriculture has to change. 
and everybody can help by buying organic produce as much as possible. And when they say, I can't afford it, I say, well, eat less and chew longer. And you don't have to eat as much. That's the third way, you see. Oh, I can't afford it, uh, you know. It's the either or again. And the third possibility is, yes, I buy less and, and just taste more and chew more, and I get the... I get more out of that uh, that bite than than I did before. So there are always solutions, and that's what we have to search for. And that's my job. And my wife joins me in that. And we are we are grateful that we have support from several hundred individuals that we can do that work for not only for Virginia, but I think for the United States and beyond. Yes, and I definitely agree with what this can really come down to as part of the solution, and that is the internal search within for everyone, as well as these commercial beekeepers. But there's, you know, good luck getting them to see past the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can change and alter things we do, and like you said, if it's a little more expensive, uh, those things. If you're paying for the real deal, the real product, it can be worth it, as long as people aren't actually gouging the price, like sometimes at Whole Foods. <laughs> yeah. But, right. you know, it's you, you're going to pay a little more for the real deal. And, again, yeah. depending on the circumstances and market exactly. demand and all those other things. Yeah, I have a statistic. 1960, uh, people paid... 33% of their income for food, and 1998, I think it was, uh, only 16%, so less than half, and uh, that made it possible that we can buy all the other stuff, including all the junk we don't need, mm-hmm. you know, not really that we don't really need, <laughs> and uh, that's a planned uh, economy to make the farm produce as cheap as possible, then you can buy more of everything else. And we have to come back to a respect of what the farmer does and what he should be doing and not, you know, um, planting 5,000 acres on a few afternoons or a few days and have a side job on the side. I mean, farming needs a total commitment if you do it well. And you can't do it on 5,000 acres. You you don't have an elephant five times as big as it is now. An organism has a limit and a farm has a limit. So another topic for you. <laughs> and that makes me think, and I'm just thinking out loud on this one, couldn't the big beekeepers, like if the movement took off of of smaller farmers, couldn't they just sort of subcontract like a, like a whole bunch of little farms and then extract the honey that way? Or I guess they think that's more expensive. Rather than trying to do these monster corporate farms that they do. Yeah. Just yeah, sort of subcontract it out. It's doable. It's more expensive. And that's all right. You know, we sell our honey for, I think, $12 a pound, not for 6 or $7 a pound. And it's worth every gram, every ounce. It should be considered medicine. It is medicine. It is medicine. 
It put, is healing, and you, it shouldn't be cheaper than ice cream. Oh, no, because that's mostly sugar when it's, you know, 3 or $4. But raw yeah. honey, um, you could put on, like, cuts and burns. I had My mother had told me that. Right. It's, a, yeah. it's one of the best medicines or actually for bandaging, uh, especially big burns. You can pull the... The, the cloth off or the bandage off without pulling the new skin off. So that's coming that uh, for tooth extractions, for burns, for wounds, honey, uh, as a matter of fact, in combination with um, fish oil is mm-hmm. one of the great healers. Wounds that don't want to heal, heal with a, a mixture of honey and cod liver oil. So ah, very interesting. Yeah. Yes. I remember hearing that ancient Egyptians used to use um, raw honey for these purposes and said it thought it, thought it to have uh, antibacterial qualities as well. Right, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So eating a half a teaspoon or a teaspoon of honey a day actually keeps us strong. You know, I'm 70 years old, but I'm, you know, I'm still working a lot. Mm. And I can, yeah, still do quite a bit, and that's because I eat a little bit of honey every day. And everybody over 35 should consider honey more important than milk for keeping. Oh, let me go get a jar. (laughs) Yeah, you should. And well, folks, we we covered a lot. No, I mean, did yes, we did. But a lot too. Yeah. Uh, we got about 13 minutes left. Um, mm-hmm. It's been great talking okay. to you. I'm really, really glad you... Well, talking to you. I'm really glad that you, you know, gave us some of your time today, and we definitely learned a lot. Well, we can use those 13 minutes if you have more questions for me. Sure. I'd like to go back to the relationship with the bee real quick. I remember one person in the Queen of the Sun video saying that the bees choose the keeper. And I was wondering what your right. take on that is. Yes, that's Very the French guy. I love that guy with the mustache brushing the bees. Yes, that was <laughs> I, him. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he also says a yogi is a natural beekeeper because he knows how to calm himself. Yeah, I think people, more and more people are called by the bees to start with bees. At least that's our experience. People email us and people come to our courses and say, I've never considered it, but I somehow feel I have to start with bees. Mm. So people are called to do that healing and to help change the paradigm. But, uh, of course, it's a profession, so... We also experience, unfortunately, people who just get bees and put them in their yard and then two days later don't know what to do. So you wouldn't buy a cow and then two days later find out what they need to eat or things like that. So I think learning about the bees, about the life cycle, uh, you can use an app. a, a conventional beekeeping book for that. And then mm-hmm. if you have my book, you know what not to do, what they recommend. But uh, <laughs> learning about their life cycle and, and, and all that is extremely important if you're going to have bees. 
and just putting them in your backyard and not knowing anything about them um, it just doesn't work. So I can encourage everyone, this is fall now, or fall is on already, even though officially we have summer, um, to start learning over the winter and prepare a hive, whether it's a length trough, a conventional hive, or a top bar hive, or a Vore hive, that's from a Frenchman, Vore is the name. Whatever you choose, learn about it and be ready in spring to start with the bees. This is a great time to prepare to be a beekeeper. And I can also say that you will never in one lifetime learn enough to feel like you've got it all covered. The, the <laughs> being of the bee is so deep, so mysterious, so full of wonder that we are still finding out scientifically, you know, this and that and the other. Uh, it's a lifelong learning process, which is very exciting. You know, you, you're constantly, every year you're still learning. So it's not like uh, that you can have a recipe book and you apply the recipe and that's it. It's actually much more invigorating and much more exciting. Sounds uh, deep, Janice. Uh, I notice on the flyer for Queen of the Sun, uh, Yvonne recites poetry to his bees. So mm -hmm. do you go out and talk to your bees? Uh, or sing or recite poetry or make play music for them? Because I know it works but, for plants and flowers. Right. All of what you mentioned. And All you, of what? Oh, cool. <laughs> I, I usually only sing when I'm alone. <laughs> I'm not Do they have a favorite song? There we go. <laughs> right. But <laughs> I tell you a little story that uh, I was, in, uh, I think I was in Summerfield, at the Summerfield Water School in Santa Rosa, and my wife was talking to an animal psychic about um, the cat we had and the problem. And then she asked, well, are the bees getting water uh, in in a good place. And after a while, the woman who was on the East Coast uh, said, yes, they're getting good water, but but they're missing the person who talks to them and meditates for them. And my wife told me that, and I felt ashamed because for a few days I really lost sight of it. I was too busy with the workshop and everything. But that just proved to me that they do... We, they do um, perceive that, you know, and you can do it quietly, you can do it loud, you can recite poetry. We have, sometimes we sing to them or we have um, bells and in the next workshop next week we have somebody coming with different tones, the different tones that are appropriate for the different planets and the A is the sun tone and so we also use the sun tone because they are sun beings. So to your question, yes, all of the above. They even recognize the beekeeper. Interesting. We, That's very interesting. Yeah, and we actually when we have a workshop and we hand out, you know, we take a frame of bees and hand them from one person to another one and nobody gets stung. Of course, a day or two before, I do ask the bees 
that they be gentle with them. And most of the time it works. I mean, only when I'm not doing that is when things happen. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting. It sounds definitely like you live what you discuss in that you are you really have a bond with this animal or animals and it's it's interesting to see how things can work better for you when you develop these bonds and when you respect natural law and the laws of nature mm-hmm. i remember my brother speaking of song my brother used to have a favorite his cat would go out and wouldn't come in at night sometimes and my brother would walk around the yard whistling. There was a certain song, if he whistled, the cat would come back. It was a certain melody mm-hmm. that he just sort of just discovered brought the cat back. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My and, wife has that ability to find animals out, you know, a ferret that got lost in the woods, and she goes over straight in the woods and finds it. And Yeah, mm. we have, that's one thing we have to develop a lot more. And in former times, you know, the Arab had its deep relationship with a horse and the shepherd with a sheep and the farmer with the cows. And he could go into the paddock and uh, with a bull and not get hurt. And I've seen farmers do that. Yeah, so and we have a long way to go, but it's good to start now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it brings me to my next question. Um, in my research, I don't think I I found this out. Did you? How did you learn beekeeping? Was it in the family or just later on? No, I became a gardening teacher at a water school in Stuttgart, Germany, and there were ten hives there, and it was just part of the gardening, and that's mm. how I got into beekeeping without really consciously wanting to. <laughs> but mm. it, it's so fascinating that you know I got caught right away. It is interesting how something your path can change and your inspiration can change when you think you're doing one thing related but end up doing something else. Yeah, it's been a great gift ever since, same as the gardening, the biodynamic gardening, just changes your life because it's what you do outside that has an effect on the inside and the work you do on the inside has its effect on the outside. There is no separation. So you're doing something that makes you happy? Yes. Yes. I can truly say that. <laughs> That's, a, That's wonderful. Good way to live. <laughs> deep, deeply satisfying. I think when we have it, uh, say, when we have the saying to the pursuit of happiness, I mean, what makes you happy? It's when you do something in the world, for the world, and not just for yourself, that you know it's good. Whether I can do it as well as I would like to is another question. You know, we always fall a bit short of our goals. But that is the true happiness, not the kind of happiness that you find in the movies sometimes. Yes, I agree. Correct. And for those of you joining us, we've been talking to Gunter Hauk. He's a beekeeper and very knowledgeable on this topic and on uh, nature. And we're coming down 
towards the end, Gunther, about three minutes left, and mm-hmm. I wanted to thank you again for your time. Oh, thank you so much for talking to us. You're most welcome. It's great if a lot of people hear that and pick up this or that and come along with us on that on that road, on that on that new Absolutely. way. Absolutely. And of course at the end of this interview we just ended on a great note. Service to others can be service to yourself and can lead to a, a fulfilling life. So thank you very much, Gunther. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I some of the, my friends have asked me for to um get this presentation that will be available next week, I suppose. I will In send it to you right after the show. Oh, it goes very quick. Archives. <laughs> thank you both, Denise and Daniel, and all the best to you, and thanks for bringing out programs like that. All right. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. It's part of our service as well. Right. So, folks, you've been listening. That was Gunther Hauck, listening to Main Street Universe. And remember that the mysteries and possibilities of the universe are closer to Main Street. You may have ever imagined. Thank you.